Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. To find ourselves and our identity is often compromised by youth, ethnicity, expectations, peer pressure and a myriad range of competing facets. Michael Muhammad Ahmed explores this confusion, frustration and complexity in his novel The Lebs. So, Michael, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me and salamu alaikum, which means peace be upon you in the language of my ancestors. I first want to look at the setting of this novel. The book is fictional, but the school that it's primarily set in is a real place. It's the high school I went to. It's in the western suburbs of Sydney. It's a school when I was there between 1998 and 2004, which had uh, nine-foot fences, barbed wires, cameras. On the inside, it wasn't uncommon for me to see extreme acts of violence. I I have vivid memories of friends of mine being stabbed in the head in the corridor of the maths unit. And on the outside, the media and the politicians were always happy to write some kind of story about about Lebs, about Arab Australian Muslim men, and come to Punchbowl for that story. But Punchbowl was a success at one stage, and then there was a change of headmaster, and then somebody was replaced, etc. What what I think is interesting about that point you raise is that the the, the transformation happened when Jihad Dib, who is now a, a politician but at the time was a a school teacher who had become the school principal of Punchbowl Boys, became the principal. And I would argue that what Jihad was able to do that a lot of other principals were not able to do is reach the students on a personal, socio-political and cultural level because he was a member of the community. He was an Arab-Australian Muslim man. And that enabled the boys to be able to identify with him. Well, this is the big point about the Lebs itself, my work as an Arab-Australian Muslim male writer, and in the case of somebody like Jihad Dib, and why people like us can play an active role in transforming our own communities, because there is a lot of research which demonstrates that mirroring the idea of self-determined representation that comes from within a community and the role models that come out of that community are the ones who will ultimately empower the community. Uh, you know, this old white saviour complex of going into a marginalised space and fixing it, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. We can fix it from, from within on our own backs. And that's why I wrote The Lebs, as a self-determined act. People going in and fixing, the principle is a gentleman called White Church, which says it all. And into this comes our hero, Barney Adam. The choice of name? So uh, I'm glad you, you noticed that it's an obscure name because Bunny Edem in Arabic, it's not necessarily a name. I, I've never met anybody named Bunny Edem. It's actually a term in Arabic which means child of Adam. It's a literal translation um, or a kind of more metaphorical translation. It's just how we, we say humankind in Arabic. And I, I gave him that name because there is a unique cultural specificity to the lebs. And I mean, I use the term in, in its most culturally specific way, but I wanted to counterbalance that with Banny's humanity. He's a human being and, and he's a three-dimensional human being. He's often pigeonholed, stereotyped, uh, generalized, marginalized as this kind of simplistic figure. And I wanted to create a three-dimensional complex character who embodies what it means for us as um, as a human being. Well, it, it is as a human being. He's on that search to find his own identity, which is something that goes beyond ethnicity and race. It's what every 
young person goes through, and he goes to some unique ends. Over the next few days, I observed the Lebs' outfits carefully, looking for what they might have in common, and I realised that they all wear pants that narrow at the ankle, their feet sticking out like a duck's, their black leather shoes bulging. Okay, I will bring flares to Punchbowl Boys. I start to wear my sister's navy blue school pants that spread open at the feet and cover my shoes. Now I look like Gumby in comparison to the ducks, triangular and grounded and solid. So he's trying to set himself apart. Uh, that's one really good example of how Banny tries to distance himself. I would argue the primary way he tries to distance himself from the lebs, who he, he considers uh, culturally inferior to whiteness. Um, the way Banny distances himself is by engaging in the literary canon. So throughout the novel, he reads extensively. He reads Nabokov, he reads Chekhov, he quotes Gabriel Garcia Marquez, he reads Khalil Gibran, he quotes Shakespeare. And so he thinks of himself as a critical, a critical witness. But he's a participant in, the, in a wider culture and he's looking for a way to identify or find other people that can engage on that same level. He, he is. I think what's really important to understand, though, is that the book isn't arguing that Banny is actually better than the Lebs. It, I'm doing that ironically as a creative writer. The story is about a young Arab-Australian Muslim man who's growing in this hyper-masculine, patriarchal, misogynist, homophobic, violent space and develops self-hating tendencies because of it and tries to distance himself. But the journey that he takes, I think, is about discovering the beauty in being a Leb. It's a world of savagery. Uh, it's that primitive world. And But he sort of identifies with his teacher, one of the female teachers there, uh, which is what a lot of young boys do. Whilst all the other lebs are talking about sexuality and uh, looking at things physically, he's trying to quote these works of literature to engage with his teacher. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, from my real experiences as an Arab-Australian Muslim male, uh, that particular teacher, I, I would argue, is a composite of probably about six or seven teachers that came into my life uh, throughout um, my, hi- my primary school and high school years um, who were both male and female. I, I developed, I think, as a young man, romantic, homosocial um, attraction to male teachers just as much as female teachers. But because there's such a kind of significant queer character in the last part of the book who Banny develops quite homoerotic tendencies towards, I counterbalance that with a quite a heteronormative relationship to this older female teacher. And I, I, what's, what's really interesting is that Banny does think of himself as intellectually superior to the Lebs and uses literature to distance himself and to engage with the teachers, but he often misinterprets what the literature is saying. And so the, the best example of that is Lolita. So he's a big fan of Lolita and he's constantly quoting Lolita and he's romanticized the idea that he and Mrs. Leila Haimi are playing out a version of Lolita. But he's, because the, the gender roles are reversed, he's not sure if he's Lolita or Humbert Humbert. And he sympathizes with Humbert Humbert. He doesn't understand yet that Humbert is a sexual predator and a pedophile. The book then is divided into three sections, drug dealers and drive-bys, gang rape, war on terror. Now, the drug dealers and drive-bys really sets the scene and the attitude, and that's set against the backdrop of 9-11. And so we get an assembly after 9-11. Isa slowly lowers his guerrilla arm and sits up straight. All 40 lebs and all four of our teachers turn and look at him silent and still as death itself. It feels as though words from the realm of Michael Fury and the dead are about to come out of Isa Musa. Then, just before he cracks the static air with his unwavering voice, a sense of despair washes over me, the kind of despair, perhaps, that drives us to martyrdom. 
Why would Isa Musa have anything special or meaningful to say? Has any boy ever said anything meaningful at Punchbowl? Why would Isa's statement be any cleverer than the things he said before, or any cleverer than the statements made by the boys before him, who always get higher grades than he does? Isa's chest is deflated, his shoulders are hunched, and his entire face looks like it's sinking into the Red Sea. His fat lips slowly spread apart as he takes in a deep breath and says in a croaky voice, I've been at this school since 1998. Before he can continue, every student in the room laughs. Nah, they all say, as in, who's this poof? He thinks he's Malcolm X. He's been sitting there the whole time actually preparing a speech. It's shameful the way punchbowl boys bring each other down, even when we're on the same side. Isa Musa ignores the laughter as though guided by the will of Allah, his voice springing from his ribs and erupting above the lebs. He starts again, more clearly this time. I've been at this school since 1998, and throughout that time a million Arabs like us have been murdered by America and Israel, and you never cared. Then this morning some Americans die and you put the flag at half-mast. The attitude in the school? So, you know, you read, I think, the flip side to the events of 9-11 and how it impacted the Arab-Australian Muslim men at Punchbowl Boys High School. Going back from that quote that you read, the lebs on that morning came to the school jubilant, celebrating. Um, They didn't see the events of 9-11 as, to quote George Bush, an unjustifiable act of hate and terror. They saw it as blowback, which is a CIA term. They saw it as the inevitable result of American and uh, Israeli and Australian, in some cases, foreign policies towards the Middle East. And um, because of that, there was a particular tension that was building in the school all day. The teachers were getting really frustrated with the boys because the, the boys were celebrating and thought of it as a, as a good day. And the teachers were mourning. They'd put the flag at half-mast, as you read in the quote. So the principal brings us up to the, to the school library to talk us through why our behavior has been so um, offensive. And that's the context in which Issa Musa puts his hand up, this young boy from a Palestinian background, and says, there's something hypocritical about you mourning this event, but not valuing the millions of Arabs and Muslims, our relatives, who die every year. And I wanted to give both points of view. I wanted, as a creative writer, to explore the destructive tendencies in Arab and Muslim communities in Australia and around the world when it comes to incidents like 9-11, but also some of the, the global political discourse which constructs their anger and which constructs even their joy. Which they don't probably even realise in, in many ways. They can't necessarily intellectualise it. But it's interesting, it's Isa Musa, who's not one of the intelligentsia, so to speak, an academic or anything. He's an ordinary boy. But that's one element. But he's also put down in some ways by the others until he comes up with that gem. It's interesting because there's a kind of performance of lebness. And so, you know, Isa Musa is, um, is a leb like all the boys, even though he's Palestinian background. The, the term leb, for me, it's not a term which is specifically referring to, to people from Lebanese background. It's not shorthand for Lebanese. It was kind of a brand new identity. I knew Indonesians who were calling themselves lebs. And so this was a, a unique Australian identity which pretty much referred to anybody from Arab and or Muslim background and or appearance. So it's a very broad term which refers to a particular group at a particular moment in time in Australia. In the case of Issa Moose's gem, his friends make fun of him but because it's, a, it's actually a resilient, ironic place. I think usually when we, we imagine these, these schools, 
um, that are marginalized and underfunded and underprivileged, we think of them as miserable. And, and we imagine that some good private school, white middle class values will, will liberate them. But we forget that the boys there are having a really good time. It's not as miserable as it was portrayed in SBS as the principal, which made it look like a ghetto and made everybody look like they, you know, had just been brutalized by their parents or something. So, um, so I wanted to, to, to look at the joy and the irony and the resilience that comes in that community in addition to the powerful political messages that a lot of those boys carry. I just want to make one more point. Um, you, you made the observation that he says not a, I'm not a member of the intelligentsia, but he comes up with this gem. Look, what's so fascinating about those boys that I write about, and they couldn't pass their HSC, most of them. However, there was a type of education, a type of knowledge that these 15-year-old boys had, which even most adults in Australia don't have when it came to foreign policy. Their education and knowledge about global affairs and, and global politics was incredible. Most Australians did not know or care about who Bin Laden was before 9-11. They only start to care when it directly affects the West. But those young boys, all of them, who were 14 and 15 years old at Punchbowl, knew who Bin Laden was. They knew about the CIA. They knew about the conflicts in Afghanistan. They knew about the Gulf War. They knew about what was going on in Palestine. But at the same time, there's a, shall I say, hint of ignorance amongst these boys because at one point you have them discussing um, being Alawite or Shiite or, or Sunni and really their understanding or appreciation of those differences is really quite vague. Uh, my argument is, as a writer is to show just how complex it is. I think Muslims are often pigeonholed as a homogenous group who all agree on the same thing. We have the same Quran. We have the same text, which is passed down through written text, but originally was orally transmitted. Hard to believe that it can be transmitted so uh, um, so precisely from a Western gaze. But 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 if you understand it from the sophistication of a developed oral tradition from the Arab world, then it's actually reasonable. And I wanted to show that even though we have a consistent and uh, singular text, the different interpretations and points of view of the text are actually extremely diverse. And so those young men in their naivety and in their debates in the, in, in the library and out on the street about what the Quran says and what it means is a way of me demonstrating that the, the Muslim community, it's not this one monolithic group. There are thousands of Muslim communities just in one suburb, just in Punchbowl. You know, and two next-door neighbours who are Muslims could have less in common than uh, a Lebanese family living in Lakemba would have in common with a Lebanese family living in Syria. We move on from uh, that background of the school. The next section is entitled Gang Rape. Sounds horrific, but uh, we don't actually have a gang rape. But we have, well, sexuality being addressed. And into this comes Samantha and the connecting up digitally, people that don't even know each other, their awareness of sex and, and mm -hmm. what it is. It's really, and they struggle greatly. So let, let me firstly talk about these three sections because you're, you're quoting them. You're saying the first one's called drug dealers and drive-bys. The second one is called gang rape. Um, that was the language that was being used at the time by the media and the politicians to pigeonhole Arab Australian Muslim men who were young. And so I do it subversively. I give those titles to my stories, but, I'm, but there aren't actually drug dealers and drive-by shooters in the second part of the book, which is called Gang Rape. I didn't want to go down the path of the sexual assaults or that, that had made national headlines 
um, in the year 2000 in the, in the western suburbs and had pigeonholed all young Arab Australian Muslim men as gang rapists, the way the media had constructed it. I didn't want to talk about that, but I did want to use that language to talk about sexually predatory behavior of, um, of this particular group of young men, which may not be deemed sexual assault, but has severe traumatic implications and repercussions for the male and female people for, involved in the situation. For the male as well, because, I mean, Shaky actually ends up having sex, but he's always seen it as being haram. And, and then he doesn't know what to do. He loses. So, so just to quote what happens in the book um, and to reference it, he loses his virginity in a cinema with a girl who, on the way to the cinema, told him and tells Banny as well that she'd been raped, that she was a sexual assault victim. He goes to the cinema with her. They go down to the exit room and they have sex in the corridor. And then she comes back into the cinema and he, he panics and runs away, which I think is really treading a fine line of, of sexual assault. And, and, you know, it's so easy for us in the, in the kind of current Me Too campaign to make sexual assault really simple and black and white but it's really those complex interactions between young men and young women where it gets where we have to actually start unpacking how predatory that behavior is well it's there's a complexity there because samantha has her own agenda as well being a rape victim in many ways if i can interpret into it because you don't necessarily paint her background but we can imagine why she's doing it in terms of seeking connection look i should point out that this actually happened you know this story actually happened so I, I i feel uncomfortable talking about what happened to this actual young woman who went out with three lebs and ended up in a sexual encounter that was that was consensual for both the male and female but was i would argue still predatory on the male part but, but neither party really understood their reasons they're, for doing yeah. what they were doing. Their kids, yeah. their, their children. And, 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 you know, for young men and young women reading this book, I think it's, it's looking at, because we kind of filter a huge, like, you know, really a, a, a explicit sexual assault narrative with the Harvey Weinstein um, incident, that it's harder to actually identify the sexually predatory behavior that's going on in just day-to-day interactions. Uh, can I also say... And this is the most important point because it's so easy to racialize this narrative and to say this is about bad lebs. But here's the thing. While I'm writing about the behavior of Shaky and Samantha and what happens between them, in the backdrop is a narrative about the film they're, they're watching at the cinema, which is American Pie, the first American Pie film, which is, sexual, I would argue, sexually predatory behaviour of white middle-class young men. It shows the inadequacy of white middle-class men, which is just as prevalent as that among the Leb community. But also in the backdrop, you've got Barney Adam trying to establish a relationship himself. He's looking for a more intellectual engagement, if I can put it that way. Uh, He's also admitted to, to himself at least, his love for his teacher sort of thing. So his is a different sexual experience in many ways. So it's, it's a multi-layered sexual experience that's, that's being illustrated here. I think that the way white men in Australia and around the world historically have defined themselves as culturally superior in contradistinction to lebs and to 
Arab Muslim men, particularly through the lens of feminism, is extremely problematic and it's false. It's not true. And we're seeing that manifesting, that reality manifesting through what's going on in the Me Too campaign because we're seeing the sexually predatory behavior of of a lot of very powerful white men um, in Hollywood at the moment. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to explore the sexual predatory behavior of young Arab Australian Muslim men, but I wanted to contrast it to a huge influence of white maleness, which actively reinforces some of the values. And I want to make this point. When I was growing up, the media and the politicians were very good at consulting with Muslim sheikhs as though they were the ones who were teaching us sexual predatory behavior. But, you know, I think to myself on Friday, which is the most sacred day of praying for Muslims, they weren't at the mosque. They were at football games. And um, and the kind of history of the NRL in, in Western Sydney um, and in, in New South Wales of having white male sexually predatory behaviour is rampant. Well, you've got also then the uh, boxing imagery, which is described sexually as well. Now, we're going to have to move on because we're going to run out of time. The last section, War on Terror, again, used uh, sort of ironically because we have a drama workshop. And I would suggest that what is taking place here, um, Barney is involved in an improvisation which is addressing this concept of terror, is almost like a form of terrorism in itself. Um, the last story for me is about... Um is is about intersectionality. What happens is Banny, the first two stories is Banny's within his world, within his lab world. And he's got this romantic idea that whiteness is a culturally superior standard to Arabness. And so he wants to aspire to what he, what he says is greatness and whiteness. And so he goes and joins a, a theatre um, arts organisation in the western suburbs of Sydney, which is run by white, left-wing, primarily queer artists who come from Sydney's inner west to Bankstown to run a development on violence. And he is a, a participant and kind of a prop because they need a leb in their show for for the diversity quota. Well, they're using him as a prop and he eventually basically becomes the victim because Addison, who's running this, has her own agenda which in some ways links uh, to the sort of agenda that might have been behind what Samantha was doing. You've got these people with these hidden agendas based on their past experience, which they then foist on others. It's complex because um, Banny comes into that space as, a, as, a, as quite a naive, uneducated leb and reinforces so many of the misogynist, homophobic values that he brought from Punchbowl. But what he doesn't realize is that these people who have come in to work with him and uh, are, are exotifying him, orientalizing him, and exploiting his ethnicity. And so this is a moment in the book where I think things flip around and we are able to have a critical lens on, on white middle-class values and the hypocrisy that often exists in those spaces which are built on old colonial models of how white communities engage with the other. 
and the white communities simply don't see it, don't understand, for example, why uh, Barney is wanting to keep clean, so to speak, they object to his deodorant and all these sorts of things, but there's a cultural reason for it. They don't understand that they're racist, just like Barney doesn't understand that he's homophobic and sexist. And this is the thing. I wanted that last story to be a complex and sophisticated exploration of the intersections between race, class, gender and sexuality. Well, just getting on to the sexuality then at the very end, and I don't know how much you want to say about what Barney finds in the end, which I don't think is sex in the traditional uh, image of it. He's been quoting the prophet, love grinds you to whiteness all the way through. And uh, we have a scene where he's grinding my face into the white fibres of his shirt. And it's homoerotic, but not homosexual, if I could say it that way. The term homosexual doesn't actually exist in Arabic and in Islam. In the Quran, there are acts that are sinful. And most gay acts, are, if heterosexuals did those acts, would also be considered sinful based on some interpretations of the Quran. Unfortunately, the majority... The, the kind of dominant orthodox interpretations, though there are alternative interpretations. But the, the actual idea of being gay, that's a very Western concept. Westerners and, and European culture and history has a kind of obsession with labels and categorizing particular identities. And so if we were going to participate in that kind of labeling, yes, Benny, I would argue as the writer, is not gay. But I think between Benny and Bucky, there is a homoerotic and homosocial dynamic between them, which can only really be described as a very powerful love between two men. Bunny finds an understanding, uh, an awareness, somebody else who has been alienated. And so that embrace is sort of an awareness, an ability to communicate, which is or can be sexual, but it's not what the lebs have been talking about in the first section, which is, you know, thighs and tits and such like. It's, it's, a, it's what he's been searching for in some ways, a deeper understanding and appreciation. So let's unpack explicitly what we're talking about. Uh, Benny um, comes into contact with a character in the book who's very plays a very big role in the last part of the book named Bucky who's a queer Greek-Australian arts worker in, in the western suburbs of Sydney. Um, Bucky is based on one of my, my closest friend and one of my oldest friends, Peter Pilates, who's also a writer and who's author of Down the Hume. And Bucky is an autobiographical version of Peter, and Bucky is the main character in Peter's book, Down the Hume. So I don't consider these books sequels or are directly related, what I would argue is they are part of the same Western Sydney literary universe that a group of writers from culturally diverse backgrounds have been creating for the last 15 years. And so Benny is pursuing Bucky throughout the story, which is very parallels my relationship, my personal relationship with Peter Pilates, who I was pursuing, because Bucky and Peter know something that Muhammad Ahmed, the person speaking to you now, and Bani Adam, the character in the lebs, don't know. And so they chase after him. We, I chase after him, and Bani chases after him to find out what he knows 
And what he basically understands is that there's nothing wrong with being a leb. It's beautiful. And so the story is about Banny learning to love himself through this homosocial relationship with a with an intelligent, critical, charismatic gay man in Find, his community. Finding who you are and finding your identity. I've been talking to Michael Muhammad Ahmed. The book is The Lebs, and it is a Hache publication. So, Michael, thank you very much. Thank you so much, and salam alaikum to you, and salam alaikum to all your listeners.